listeners. Welcome to The Learning Curve. This is Kara Kandel, and I am here with my wonderful, fearless co-host, the great Gerard Robinson. We're coming to you. We're recording this podcast on a day when the verdict and the death of George Floyd has just moments ago been handed down, um, and uh, the police officer has been found guilty on all counts. Gerard and I want to um, to honor what a what a time this has been. Certainly, many. I know I've been feeling quite tense um, for for some time, and and others have been feeling quite tense for much longer. And um, it's been a day for all of us. But Gerard and I would like to take some time to um, to process this before we before we provide our listeners with any commentary. So with that, I'd like to welcome Gerard and ask Gerard, how are you doing today? Doing well. How about yourself? Yeah, I I can't complain. As I said, this has been um, been a tense day, but um, but it's it's been um, also it's a good day. So, and we have a we have a wonderful guest ahead of us, Gerard. We have somebody who I think um, is going to be just a delight for so many of our listeners, and also um, some some. Let's talk about a couple of other stories in the news that are related to our schools, and perhaps um, well, mine, Gerard. I'd like to say. It, it makes me happy. <laughs> so um, a lot of things making me happy in this last couple minutes. But this one, this is one that made me happy when I read it uh, yesterday. And the title is Teens at Baltimore City Magnet School Saw a Challenge They Wanted to Meet So They Stepped In to Mentor Others. And Gerard, this is about, this is, you know, about a group of teenagers at a magnet school that Eastern Technical High School, I should say, and um, they have started a program. It's a mentorship program where they chaperone younger students. So these students came up with this, you know, during remote learning, during hybrid learning, um, during this very strange time that our students have been listening, have been living in. And they realized that because they've been separated from their school counselors and their peers, there were just kids who weren't getting the information they needed about key things that high schoolers need information about, such as how to independently sort of navigate um, applying to colleges and how to independently navigate extracurricular activities. And so these students took it upon themselves to do some peer-to-peer mentoring, and they explicitly don't want um, adults involved. They say that they will refer their peers to the appropriate adult personnel, be it a guidance counselor or others, when necessary. But they're really sort of taking the bull by the horns here and doing this themselves. Now, I want to point out, Jared, that one of the reasons this warmed my heart so much is because a lot of kids in this country don't have access to any of these services at all. And the fact that these teenagers realized that these services were missing for some kids at their school um, it really speaks to this school must be doing a wonderful job. Um, the families must be doing a wonderful job to um, to be raising kids that would take such initiative. But this idea that they want to reach out and help others and share knowledge with others to me is just uplifting. And it's one of it's a great uh, story to hear in what has been this, you know, really rough year of learning at home for some kids. So that's my story of the day, Gerard. It's good to hear leadership from the bottom up. So my story comes from one of our states that's not a part of the continental U.S., and that's the state of Hawaii. And this is from the Star Advertiser, April 18th of this year. And uh, Susan Esio-Yan wrote about what the Board of Education decided to do with summer school. 
So the board voted to make summer school free this year across the board. And rather than charge the $190 uh, price for one uh, credit for a course, they're going to make it free. And the reason they're doing so is because they say we need learning hubs. And they're going to offer this at 234 of the 256 Department of Education schools in Hawaii. And the goal is really to basically say, listen, uh, we're going to support students with special needs. We're going to support students across the board. We're going to have accelerated target programs. And they're even going to have internships and college on-ramp programs. And they basically said, you know, one of the things we're going to do is have a three-week transition for incoming kindergartners, many of them, of course, who missed out on preschool because of the pandemic. They're going to work with high school seniors and extend the fourth quarter into the summer so they can complete all of their credits to graduate. Now, people, of course, when they think about Hawaii, they think about sun and surf and lays and all of the great things about Hawaii, but they often, often overlook the fact that it is a, uh, a network of islands with a lot of uh, challenges, with poverty um, and another number of things. I happened to see this firsthand a few years ago when I went to Hawaii to evaluate a program called uh, the uh, Pueo Program. And it's a part of the uh, uh, Punahou School, where President Obama uh, went to school. And it's basically a private school that decided to create a summer school program for uh, low-income students, students from different parts of the area who, for a host of reasons, either could not afford, even if they were academically smart enough to go to a private school. But it was a really good summer program. And Hawaii has actually been pretty good about providing access to students across the board. But this is a big win when the fact that you say the $190 for one credit course, we're going to waive that. It's also a reminder that while we tell people that all public schools are free and that public school parents never pay a price, example of why this isn't true. So good to see something coming from the Sunshine State to use uh, free summer school to shine brightly on everyone in a time of need. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Gerard. And I'd I'd also add that I hope that we see a lot more states making announcements such as this um, and in leveraging the federal stimulus money that they've received in order to do what they are actually supposed to do um, under those guidelines, which is prioritize um, learning loss and summer programming. And this clearly does both. So, Gerard, coming up after this, we are going to be speaking with Professor Arnold Rampersad. And he is a scholar of Langston Hughes and Ralph Allison. And we're going to talk about the influence of these two great writers on so much of American history and culture and perhaps listen to a little bit of poetry, too. So I'm pretty excited about this coming up in just a minute. Curve listeners, we are here today with Dr. Arnold Rampersad. He's the Sarah Hart Kimball Professor Emeritus in the Humanities at Stanford University. A graduate of Bowling Green State University, he earned his PhD in English and American Literature at Harvard. He also taught at the University of Virginia, Rutgers, Columbia, and Princeton. His books include The Art and Imagination of W.E.D. Du Bois, The Life of Langston Hughes in two volumes, Days of Grace, a memoir, co-authored with Arthur Ashe, Jackie Robinson, a biography, and Ralph Ellison, a biography. His edited volumes include The Oxford Anthology of African-American Poetry, Complete Poems of Langston Hughes, and as co-editor, Selected Letters of Langston Hughes. Winner in 1986 
of the National Book Critics Circle Award in Biography and Autobiography. He was later a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Biography and in 2007, the National Book Award in Nonfiction Prose for his biography of Ellison. He won fellowships from the MacArthur Foundation, the J.S. Guggenheim Foundation, the NEH, the Rockefeller Foundation, and the ACLS. Princeton University awarded him its Howard T. Berman Medal for Distinction in the Humanities. In 2011, he received the National Humanities Medal from President Obama at the White House, and Harvard awarded him its Graduate School of Arts and Sciences Medal in 2014. He holds honorary doctorates from Harvard, Yale, Columbia, and the University of the West Indies, among other schools. He is a member of the Academy, American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the American Philosophical Society. Wow, what a bio. Professor Ramprasad, thank you so much for being with us on The Learning Curve today. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. We're very, very happy to have you. Um, so, so much of your work that we could dig into, but we'd like to start today uh, with Langston Hughes. Um, you know, our listeners will know, of course, Langston Hughes, the most renowned figure of the Harlem Renaissance. Would you share with our listeners what teachers and students, because we are an education-focused show, what teachers and students today should know about Hughes's celebrated literary life and poetry and how it profoundly shaped other African-American literati, um, American poetry, and even the world, the world's culture, culture across the world. Well, I think Hughes has uh, played uh, quite a role, especially via education, through uh, the way in which he has been taken up by teachers um, and also taken up by students, especially young students, uh, who have embraced his, um, his certain aspects of his style and content, his simplicity, his his uh, he he is a person who writes with uh, I think who writes a, 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 a fantastically simple American prose and this a clear uh, American prose and um, and whose poems do not seek to be. You know, difficult in the in the classical sense, but to be deep and yet still always transparent. And uh, I think the world has received them very, very well as the years have gone by. Wonderful. And I'd like to talk more specifically about um, about some specific poems here. So, to quote uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, he he wrote to Hughes. My admiration for your works is not only expressed in my personal conversations, but I can no longer count the number of times and places all over the nation in my addresses and sermons in which I have read your poems. So obviously a very strong influence there on one of the most profound um, figures in American history, along with Hughes himself. Can you talk a little bit about these famous sermons and speeches um, about dreams while Mississippi, Mississippi 1955 specifically, it was written as a poetic response to the murder of Emmett Till. Um, could you discuss these poems and the impact of them on the American civil rights movement? Well, the dream motif uh, um, or idea is, is a constant uh, in Hughes' poetry almost from the very beginning of, of, his, of his writing. Um, he, he loved to explore the idea of the dream, uh, both as a kind of non-political state or 
concept, um, but also as a political one relating to the American dream and the American dream as commonly understood, uh, perhaps, in, in, this, in the sense that Americans all wish to eventually arrive at a state of prosperity, um, but also in a more profound way, the kinds of, of, um, of achievements, spiritual achievements that ideally, at the, at the very best, uh, notations or notes on the American dream um, strive to to uh, to bring to to fruition historically and uh, on a on a on a daily basis. Um, the the poem that he um, uh, one the poem for which he's so very well known. I mean, he, there are a few that are that are part and parcel of his reputation. But uh, there was that one about that's called Harlem too. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load or does it explode? Um, uh, in terms of the... Um, uh, the Emmett Till incident that um, I think you referred to, um, a poem that is less about about dreaming than about nightmare, which is always in the background of Hughes's um, way of thinking as a kind of counterbalance to the notion, the idyllic notion of the dream, the idealistic notion of the dream. There is the American nightmare. And here he writes this poem about the murder of young Emmett Till, whose body was subsequently displayed by his mother in, in Harlem um, and, uh, and moved a tremendous numbers of people um, at a time when um, uh, other heinous acts were, did not have the same effect. And Hughes writes about the murder of Emmett Till, allegedly for whistling at a white woman. The stories vary, but uh, essentially it was for, for, uh, for something like that. And he writes, oh, what sorrow, oh, what pity, oh, what pain that tears and blood should mix like rain and terror come again to Mississippi, again, where has terror been? On vacation? Up north? In some other section of the nation? Lying low, unpublicized, masked, with only jaundiced eyes showing through the mask? What sorrow, pity, pain, the tears and blood should mix like rain in Mississippi? This is a time, of course, when Mississippi connoted the most egregious kinds of violence against black people in, in particular. Um, and when the struggle for freedom uh, was seemed to be not at all um, predictable how it would turn out, this is before, just before the rise of Martin Luther King and uh, the height of the civil rights struggle that eventually would result in uh, forms of emancipation, let me put it that way. 
Professor, I, I think it would be remiss not to mention, so you, you mentioned how Hughes was able to paint what you refer to as the American nightmare and, and, and convey that. And here we are today, we're, we're recording the show on the day, um, what we're, we're currently waiting for a verdict in the trial of the, of the murder of George Floyd. And listening to you speak about the influence of Hughes's work on the American civil rights movement of the, of the fifties and sixties. Um, I wonder as you have observed the social unrest, I mean, this, this nightmare has obviously continued for many, many Americans. Um, as you've observed the social unrest, particularly of the past year, um, what has, what has come to your mind uh, of Hughes's work? Um, what, what have you thought about as a scholar of this profound, this prolific writer um, during these times? Well, I think of the way, the extent to which this young man growing up in Lawrence, Kansas, um, with a particular background, uh, his grandmother is, um, is, is the widow of a man who died at Harper's Ferry fighting alongside John Brown. Um, his uh, maternal grandfather uh, was involved in uh, civil disturbances, as it were, uh, again, on the, in the interests of black freedom and American freedom. And this boy takes upon himself very, very early in life uh, a dedication to, through his writing, to reminding black Americans of their past, of their present, and the possibilities of their future, and also speaking to America as a whole. I, too, sing America. That's one of his better-known lines. Um, so here's someone who is, from the start, both a citizen of the world. I mean, he says it is through reading Guy de Maupassant in French um, one day that made him decide to become a writer himself and write about people he knew. By that, I, I suppose he meant the, the black people about him in particular. And here he dedicates himself. And and although he wrote a variety of 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 of, uh, of, of uh, kinds of poetry, um, he really never lost sight of that central impulse uh, to write about black America and to also to be guided by. Um, African-American popular forms, in particular the blues, the common songs of the people. Um, and he, you know, from from the beginning, let's say when he is 15 or so in 1917, and he be, is beginning to write uh, poetry that we recognize as of Hughes to the very end when he dies at the age of 67 in New York City, he, um, he remains in constant service to the idea of social justice, of American social justice, to the ideals of America, um, and especially to the idea of the dignity um, and, uh, and the destiny and, and the profound origins to of uh, black people as a whole at a time when they were absolutely despised in so many places and denied their humanity, essentially. Well, great to have you, Professor. This is Gerard Robinson. We have a couple of things in common. I'm a fellow of practice at the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture here at the University of Virginia. And my father-in-law, who passed recently, was a tennis coach uh, to Arthur Ashe. So 
I uh, just wanted to make those, uh, uh, those notes for both of us. As I think about Invisible Man, which Ellison published in 1952, is one of the greatest works of American fiction in the 20th century. Would you share with our listeners why this book is so important to understanding our country, the uh, wider influences that it had across American literature, and the main themes that high school teachers and students can draw from uh, in their own work and their own lives? Well, that's a tall question right there. Um, Ellison, um, Invisible and Invisible Man deserve to be uh, remembered and taught. Um, Ellison was different in, from other black American writers, not all of them, but most of them, in the sense that at some point he passed through a phase of, um, of, uh, of leftist writing, Marxist writing, one might even say communist affiliation uh, between, say, 1937 and 1941. Uh, but then in around 1941-42, he and Richard Wright uh, who was his mentor, I mean, they both uh, turned away from the, the, the far left uh, and Marxism, and they began to embrace um, and the idea of themselves as, 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 as citizens, as students of, uh, of, of world culture. Um, they began to notice all sorts of, of, of uh, links, uh, for example, between the blues aesthetic in the United States and the incipient um, existentialism uh, uh, that sprang up in, in Paris in the middle of the, uh, of the 1940s, uh, and recognizing that in both cases you're dealing with uh, artists are dealing with the reality of suffering and the need of human beings to transmit to, to, to transmute that suffering into art and in the process um, to bring a, 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 an incomparable sort of, of, of um, uh, comfort and, um, and understanding um, to the human, human condition. Um, in Invisible Man, um, he broke, Ellison broke with the protest, the raw protest fiction that we had seen among other writers, or most writers in some respects, out of the Amer African American tradition, and those and the and the, um, and the many white writers who were also um, writing to protest the American racial condition, um, he saw himself consciously as a, a world intellectual, so that he drew unabashedly, unashamedly on the, uh, the whole idea of world myths but also of uh, European um, high culture. And, um, d but he made sure that, uh, that they were, uh, those ideas, those themes, um, those challenges were filtered through the strain of the African-American experience, which he felt was experience enough to serve um, any kind of, um, uh, any view of the world as a, as a place of, um, that presented a, a, a continuing challenge to human beings who wish to uh, um, to understand themselves and the human condition better. So he took on the most serious questions uh, concerning art, uh, humanity, um, culture, intellectualism, 
and so on. And and because he was able to to bring these ideas or themes or approaches um, to bear on narratives about uh, what seemed to be the the ordinary African American condition, because he was able to blend these two forces, but for some people were were irreconcilable, but for him were absolutely necessary. That is to bring the intellectual and 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 world writing at its finest, at its most complex. We read the writing of of T. S. Eliot or Ezra Pound or whatever to to um, to to merge it with his probing of the African American and American condition. He was able to produce a narrative that um, in an invisible man, and then later in his collection of essays, Shadow and Act, um, that was instantly seen as something that we had never had before when it appeared in 1952, as you as you point out. Um, and it has lasted because it is it was modernist to its core, um, and its effects have not dulled over the years. Um, just as the, the challenges that it it addressed um, have not evaporated over the years, the call of Ellison still is for the writer, let's say the African American writer, but the writer in general, to see himself and herself as heir to a world tradition of thinking and of creating, thinking about the human condition and creating out of the sadness and evil and um, and beauty of, of, of the world. And because he was able to do that so brilliantly in Invisible Man, in a way that he was not able to, to repeat as a, as a feat, um, he, uh, Invisible Man remains... Uh, an essential text to understand the American condition. You spoke so well about his experiences and his intellectual influences. And he, of course, used those to shape his thinking and his worldview, whether it was growing up in Oklahoma. Uh, In fact, when I think about Oklahoma um, today, I think about Black Wall Street a 100 years ago, his attending Tuskegee Institute, his reading of the works of Hardy and Melville, Twain, you touched on some of it, of his influences and what it meant to his writing, but also help us think about what it was like being a black man in 20th century America and reading the swarth of literature that he did and using that to speak to all of us. Well, I think he was fearless. Um, I also think that he adopted the position that, uh, that nothing was beyond him. I mean, there were things he could not fully understand at first glance, but then he dug down and he learned. He learned from other people. He learned from, he did not make some artificial distinction between black intellectuals and white intellectuals. Um, he kind of resisted the idea of him, of being represented as a as a African-American intellectual because he was so determined to let people understand that um, there is there's only the state of intellectualism. It can it can be adumbrated, if you like, by by race, by culture, by history. Of course, it has to be. It will be. Um, but the, that dedication to understanding the human condition is something that we all um, start start out. Uh, trying to, to, to master, as it were, um, and it's a long, long, difficult task. Um, and 
And we've got to recognize what is um, subsidiary and what is central. And he's stuck to that centrality. Of course, I mean, some of his most important work, he, he was faithful to what he knew. What he knew, above all, was black culture and, and, and the blues. So he was faithful to um, an understanding uh, of the blues and the dissemination of, of, of the ideas of the blues. He had a most com complex and elegant um, description of, of the blues, which he saw related to other to, for, to forms in, in Western culture, um, for example, like the, the bullfighting or aspects of Spanish culture. Um, um, so he was always able to, always seeking to find those commonalities of the human experience, um, in the depth of human experience. Um, so um, he went to the very end, I think, believing in 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 that in those those values or that that kind of deep diving, what Melville called you know, the deep diving uh, quest, <laughs> searching for the power of blackness, if you like. Blackness not in the literal sense of, of, of skin color, but uh, that place that one gets to when one is probing where things are not, not readily seen, but they have to be continually um, probed and, and turned over before we begin to understand what it is truly like to be human. Another wonderful guest we had on our show was uh, Terry Teachout, who spoke about Louis Armstrong. And of course, Ellison talks about Louis Armstrong and Invisible Man. just want to read a quote and then ask you a question. Perhaps I like Louis Armstrong because he's made poetry out of being invisible, he said. I think it must be because he's unaware that he is invisible. Would you share with us how Ellison's love for blues and jazz and his writing uh, helped influence how we think about our country in the 20th century, maybe even now. Well, the blues has, um, it was one thing in 1920. Um, it's another thing in, in today's world, or by the, say, the 1950s and 60s and 70s, uh, when it had really, um, I wouldn't want to use the word infiltrated, but it had been absorbed, uh, its ideas, its ideas about um, pain and suffering being constants in the world um, and how uh, the great singers and players of trumpets and saxophones and so on, the jazz musicians, the blues musicians, the popular musicians too, um, how they, you know, they work through an understanding of, of the necessity of enduring and recognizing the crucial role of pain in the, the psychology of the world. Um, and, um, and, and in that way, you come out on the other, on the other side, um, recognizing that this, this uh, more than a duality, really, uh, so there's a complexity about, uh, of, of, of the human condition. Ellison was always talking, by the way, almost so that, that he, he was mocked by some of his uh, critics. Uh, he was always talking about the complexity of the human condition. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's never more complex than when you think about, about um, the nature of pain and suffering in the world and, and how, how one is able to, to derive not only um, 
comfort or, or not, not only survive the pain, but in a sense employ the pain in order to bring oneself to a greater wisdom. And I, I think that he, you know, he, he stressed how much uh, the African American blues tradition, uh, how much it represented uh, in its musical forms, in particular, whether it's vocal forms or instrumental forms. A triumph, uh, uh, he said, he talked about uh, a fingering of the jagged ed edge of circumstance, like you running your, your thumb over a razor blade, uh, you fig fig uh, fingering the jagged edge, edge of experience. And through that, be, being always aware of the tragedy of life, uh, being also aware of the joy of life and, and, and the importance of the making of art out of the um, often cruel circumstances of life. So in other words, for, to me, uh, what he did was to go straight to the heart, as it were, of, of, of the African-American condition. You might say, well, it's, it's not, it's the, it's the heart um, as seen from a particular perspective that, that emphasizes pain and suffering, but what else is, is a, is really absolutely appropriate, and how's and, and and pointing out how that way, pursuing that way, exploring that way, that pain and suffering in a kind of enlightened way, a spiritual seeking way, how that leads to to uh, psychological and other forms of deliverance in the world. Just as a follow up regarding Ellison's idea of the human condition and what it means. In April 2021, do you think that the American condition or the human condition in America, I should say, is at a point where it could appreciate the rise of an Ellison or is the condition at such a point where we try to bury an Ellison, uh, a Ralph Ellison or a Rachel Ellison, maybe even an independent of color in his or her place? Uh, well, I, didn't, I don't see um, any uh, danger of Ellison and people like Ellison being buried. The Ellisons of the world are all around us, uh, people who are looking at pain and suffering and trying to make art out of, uh, uh, of, of that pain and suffering mixed with an optimism in the human, intrinsic optimism in the human condition. Um, There'll be a lot of confusion, that's to be sure. There are people who say uh, and do things uh, that they believe are contributing to a furthering of, 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 uh, of our understanding and appreciation of the world. And in fact, they're not. But that's part, that was all, that's always been the case. Um, but there's nothing in the world today that, uh, that would, to me, to me, I'm speaking personally, that mm -hmm. was an Ellison. The Ellisons of the world. Uh, those would-be artists, would-be intellectuals, uh, the deep-diving um, types, uh, they are everywhere around us, and they simply have to be heard and not suppressed. Well, Professor, speaking of being heard, we'd love to have you read a passage uh, from some of your work. Very well. I mean, one passage that I think is, uh, seems to me interesting is that moment when Ellison, who had been laboring to disentangle himself from his uh, leftist uh, communist orientation um, in the early 1940s and late 1930s, 
um, he's been struggling to to make himself into a novelist. He was he was rather it was rather late for him to be a serious novelist to start writing in his in his twenties. But that's what um, what it, uh, that that was the situation. Um, he found himself in New England. Um, I think he was looking for experience in New England because Ellison felt himself linked in some big fundamental way to um, uh, to the New England abolitionist tradition that was very important to him. The world of, of Emerson and Thoreau and uh, Longfellow, if you like, and others. Um, so let me say, let me read this part. Ralph faced candidly the fact that he was not a quote-unquote natural novelist. As he admitted to Richard Wright, who read Richard Wright's Blues, uh, that is uh, Ralph's review of, uh, of Wright's autobiography, Black Boy, and wondered whether Wright's métier was non-fiction prose, not fiction. I have considered the possibility that I might not be a novelist myself. However, more than anything else, he wanted to be a novelist. Just as Wright had persisted through early rejections, he would himself keep going, quote, even if the work in progress fails. He could now write dialogue and build a scene, but his goals were larger. Quote, it's the form, the learning how to organize my material in order to take the maximum advantage of those psychological and emotional currents within myself and in the reader, which endow prose with meaning. It's an uncertain battle on a dark terrain, but as you know, brother, the victory is the best, most satisfying thing a writer could achieve. In Vermont that summer, a shaft of light broke through the darkness, starting several pages inside a small, fragile, undated notebook is a long entry in Ralph's handwriting, a narrative followed by notes entitled The Invisible Man. With slight variations, it begins as Invisible Man, the novel we know, begins. I am an invisible man. No, I don't mean a spook, no one of those Hollywood movie ectoplasms. I'm a man of substance, of mass, bulk, and liquids. I'm invisible simply because People refuse to see me. I'm not complaining. It's something sometimes an advantage to be unseen. In significant other details, this embryo deviates from the plot and character of an invisible man in the novel. The notes, as opposed to the narrative, also predict, but sometimes differ from the latter, from the letter and spirit of invisible man. The embryonic hero's brutishness, for example, is unlike the hero of Invisible Man who is a less potent and a more mocking observer of women. However, the remaining notes anticipate some memorable elements in the published novel. An old black woman sings a spiritual, invisible hairs a slave on an auction block, pleading with, quote, a voice like his sisters, begging the buyer not to disrobe her. A preacher intones, brothers and sisters, my text this morning is the blackness of blackness. This last detail lifted almost directly from Melville's Moby Dick when Ishmael stumbles into a black church as he looks for a place to spend his last night ashore, indicates that Melville was on Ralph's mind from the very start of Invisible Man. So too, perhaps, was Ishmael's defense of the quote-unquote big book. As Ralph 
began what would turn out to be a multi-year effort to write his own epic. One often hears of writers, Ishmael confides, that rise and swell with their subject, though it may seem but an ordinary one. Such and so magnifying is the virtue of a large and liberal theme. We expand to its bulk. To produce a mighty book, you must choose a mighty theme. always, Gerard, after that wonderful guest, we are going to close out with the Tweet of the Week. Um, this is from um, Governor Bobby Jindal, former governor of Louisiana, writing uh, about his latest Wall Street Journal opinion piece, um, his op-ed with Joe Ricketts. And the tweet says, in post-Katrina New Orleans, Louisiana built a system that serves the needs of students, not adults. The rest of the country now has the same opportunity. So listeners, um, the title of the article in the Wall Street Journal, the opinion piece is COVID provides a rare chance to transform public education. It's it's a good piece. It has some pretty solid, I like to think of them as student-centered, family-centered recommendations for how states and districts should be thinking. And Gerard, as we discussed at the top of the hour with Hawaii, you know, there's a lot of room to rethink how we do school, to rethink how kids experience school, how families experience school, um, especially with all this new stimulus money coming down. So it's a good piece. I highly recommend it. And next week, listeners, we are going to be with, I'm very excited about this. I get excited about all of our guests, but I have followed this guest in particular for for quite a long time. And boy, she is one of a kind. Um, Marguerite Rosa We will say I've learned recently, formerly of Pioneer Institute, but currently of the Edgenomics Lab at Georgetown University. She is going to be with us to talk all things school finance. And I don't know. I think there's nothing sexier than that. So... And I mean I that. I, I really actually do mean that. I'm not being tongue in cheek at all. It's just cool stuff. And her work is great. So, Gerard, until then, um, I think we're going to have a lot to talk about next week. Yep. I hope you have a good one, my friend. Same to you. Same to you.